Welcome to the Highway Church Podcast. We're excited for you to join us today. To find out more about us, visit highway.com.au. If you type like following an actual Bible, um, 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to specifically look at verse 5 um, here in a second. Um, as always, good to be here with you. Um, outside in the foyer area, we have a small table set up with our resources. I only brought the new stuff I've done in the last two years. Um, we use that to do our missions in the world, um, specifically to take care of um, disabled children in China and uh, to get girls out of sex trafficking in, in South Africa. So you could pick those things up. The brand newest ones I just finished. Uh, one on the nature of Christ. And the idea is, is that if God is, the, if the final and full way to see God is revealed in the, in the risen Christ, why that's good news. And, um, and so with my friend, Chris Mulhair, um, we, we sort of, they produced it for me and we did this thing and it covers some really, really um, in-depth topics like suffering and wrath and judgment and um, and ethics and liberty and love and all of this stuff. So you could pick that up out there. Also, just, uh, re- I just uh, released one called Mastering the Art of Living as well, as well as um, we did a new Revelation series. So I got so embarrassed by what people were saying about the book of Revelation, I just couldn't cope. So um, I, I said, you know, I'm just gonna take this on. And, um, and so we put that out there as well. Again, all that goes um, to the poor and the afflicted. Um, one other thing before we get started is um, I'd like to invite you back tonight. Um, as always, I always put something special aside for the highway evening uh, service at five o'clock. And, um, and so if you check with the powers that be and make sure there's still room um, in terms of our space requirements and then and register for tonight. It'd be, a, it'd, be an hour, it'd be an hour well spent. I promise you it'll change your life. If it doesn't, I'll pay you back whatever they charge you to come, okay? So it's safe. So just go ahead and, and, and check that out uh, tonight uh, at five o'clock. It'll be over 10 after six or so, um, which I know is important. When, when you start talking about evening services with people over 40, it's important that they know when it's gonna end. Because once you turn 40, you don't do things outside after seven. I get it, I get it. I, I travel the world, sometimes people say, hey Shane, you wanna go to a movie? And I'm like, what time does it start? They're like 7.45. I'm like, what am I, an animal? Like, what's, what, what are you talking, 7.45 won't be home till 10. I get it, you'll be done at 6.15 or so and then have some fellowship time and go forward. All right, so I wanna start, before we get to the scripture, I wanna start this morning with a story that hopefully you identify with. It's a story about how I grew up and, and hopefully you'll, something in this will ring uh, true with you. When I was a kid, I was kept by my grandmother. My grandma was a fully devoted follower of Jesus, an awesome lady, but an old school Pentecostal holiness lady. And so she, she said some things to me that stuck because things that you learn when you're a kid, they sort of, I don't know if your brain's just, I, I don't know how it all works, but it just sticks in there, right? And so she said to me, hey, Shane, hey, careful, I'm five, careful, even when granny can't see you, you know where this is going, God sees. Even when granny can't see you, God sees everything. Now here's the problem with that, right? The problem with that is that all lies that get traction have at least 70% truth to them. Straight lies don't ever have you know, enough compelling stuff in it. But so there's a lot of truth to what she said. Right? Okay, so let's talk about the truth of what she said. And then let's talk about the lie, right? Well, the, the truth is, does God see everything? Yeah. Does God know everything? Yeah. Is it also important that we never lose sight of that? Of course, we don't wanna lose our God awareness, that God is with us everywhere we go, everything we do, everything we say. We don't wanna lose, we don't wanna ever organize our life where God is here but not there. Because if we do that, we could justify treating people poorly. 
We could justify acting in ways that don't bring light and life uh, to our world. So is that true? Yeah, yeah. But, what's, but what is, what's the lie in it is that if all we ever heard is God sees everything and God knows everything, words matter less than our imagination of how those words function. So oftentimes we hear that and we interpret it as, and this was the next thing we were all told, one day you're gonna stand in front of God. And even the things no one saw, you know what's gonna happen? He's gonna put your whole life in front of everybody on a big old giant movie screen. Remember that being told to us, right? And first of all, how uncompelling and boring do you wanna make heaven? Sitting there watching people's lives. You imagine that? 13 billion people have lived and died an average age of 50 years. That means the first 650 billion years of eternity is us watching people's lives. How boring is that? Strap in everybody. Next up, Methuselah, right? Come on. And listen, if you, if, if you heard that, I know, if you heard that story and you rejected that, you said, you know, I don't want any part of a God like that. I wanna say good for you because maybe you're more mentally healthy than the rest of us that just went, well, okay. Because the truth of it is no mentally healthy person wants a relationship with somebody that's gonna expose them in front of everybody. So the truth of it is, is yes, God sees everything and God knows everything. But when that creates an image of standing in front of a judge, because you know what? Words matter less than how we picture words functioning. So there's a way to say true things that conjure up horrible images. I'll give you an example. Jesus is the judge. True or not? Yeah, true. But I've asked this question all over the place. When I say Jesus is the judge, what do you picture? A hundred percent of people so far has said, I picture an officer of the court, a judge, someone declaring guilt or not guilt. The problem with that is, is that the Hebrew word for judge is not a judicial officer. It's a defender. It's someone, it's someone anointed by God to set us free from whatever oppresses us. And we know that inside. Heck, there's an entire book of the Bible called the book of, yes. And these people aren't judicial officers. They're people anointed by God to set his people free from whatever's oppressing them. Because here's the problem. When we say Jesus is the judge, and then we go, come on, get close to Jesus. No one wants to, get, no one wants to be in court. Even if you're innocent, you don't wanna be in court. So there's a way we could say true things that conjure up untrue images. And I wanna go after that this morning because here's the problem. Whatever we think of God, it gets stamped into how we ultimately want to treat other people. And when we think, if we, all we ever heard is God sees everything, God knows everything, he's got a credit side and a debit side, and one day you're gonna stand in front of him and you better be in credit, but the cross worked, what? That doesn't make any sense because the truth is, is God does see everything, God knows everything. But if we had no emphasis on the next part, uh, we get this skewed sort of imagination, which leads me to 1 Corinthians 13, 5. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 is the famous love passage. If you've ever been to a wedding ever in your life, you've heard this read, right? And so Paul's like struggling with language, you know? He's like, he's trying to pin down love with one word and he's finding it very difficult to do. Why? Because love is not that which has one meaning. Love is that which renders all things meaningful. And that's two different things. So it's very difficult to, to, to tie love down to one thing. So he's like, okay, love is patient. 
Yeah, okay, that's true, but it's more than that. Love is caught. Yeah, okay, but more than that. Love, love does not envy. Yeah, yeah, that's true, but that's uh, more. Uh, love does not boast. And so he's trying to pin this down. And I want to focus in on one line that he writes because if God, if the God revealed in Christ is a God of love, then God is like this. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love keeps no record of wrong. So if you heard your whole life, God sees everything, God knows everything, one day you're gonna stand in front of him, right? And there's a credit side and a debit side. There's some truth to that. But the, 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 the fact of the matter is, is that the idea, if we have no emphasis on actually in his love and in his consent, he chooses to keep no record of wrong. Love keeps no record of wrong. Let's say it a few different ways. Love keeps no record of wrong. Let's say it this way. God keeps no record of wrong. Let's say it another way. Love doesn't keep score. Love doesn't keep score. Because here's the problem. If we have a God that keeps score, then we'll justify a life of scorekeeping ourselves. And this is partially why scorekeeping is built into everything around us. There's lots of things that keep score, like anger. Anger keeps score. Fear keeps score. Anxiety. There's, you could always keep score of things to worry about, things to be mad about, things to be angry about. It's built into, it's built into concepts of revenge. Like, have you ever heard someone say, I'm gonna get you back for that, right? Or somebody does something kind and we're like, I'll get you next time. These are scorekeeping words that are just subtly built into everything we do. This is why when somebody does something purely devoid of scorekeeping, it's confronting. Like if, you, if, you're, at, if you're at lunch at the Hyperdome, right? You're at Guzmani Gomez or something. And, and you have your lunch and you go to pay, right? And then the manager says, oh, it's okay. Someone already, someone already paid for your meal. What would, our, what would all of our responses be? Who, where? I need to know who, why? So I can get them next time, right? So scorekeeping's built, it's, it's built into our relationships. Have you ever heard this? Oh man, I don't wanna do this, but it, I have to, because it'll give me points with the wife. <laughs> points with the wife? Why do you need points? <laughs> to cash in for what? Does she make you collect points? <laughs> or I don't want to do this. It'll give me points with the husband. He's got some points with me, and we got to keep the ledger. Because here's the problem with scorekeeping. When we have a scorekeeping God, we have scorekeeping relationships. When we have scorekeeping relationships, somebody's ahead. And somebody's behind. And oftentimes, somebody's hopelessly behind. <laughs> See, that's the problem with scorekeeping in marriage. It's not a level playing field. Men get points one point at a time. They lose points 10,000 at a time. <laughs> like, man, flip. Can't keep up with the score. Let, let's just say it one other way. Unhappy people keep score. When we lose the divine privilege of living in a loving relationship with our neighbors, our coworkers, our spouses, whatever the case may be, 
when everything, when there's a running tally of who you're in front of and who you're behind of and who owes you and who you owe, and we wonder why we're depressed, unhappy people keep score. There's all kinds of examples of this. Like, like let's say you need a ride to the airport at 4 a.m. And you got two kids and you're like, listen, this is gonna be a daunting task, getting them up at 3.30, and I, like honestly. So you call a friend, you're like, look, can you give me a ride to the airport at 4 a.m.? I got these kids and it's, it's just, it is a heck of a thing to do that. Can you please help me? And the person says, sure, that's an act of love. Until a week later, they call you and say, remember when I did that for you? Now you need to do something for me. As soon as it becomes a score, something is tainted in the loving act. And it's just built into everything, which leads me to a story in the scripture that I want us to be inspired by. So when you, when, when, when you read the scripture, you wanna ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And two, and more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? So let me see if I can summarize. I'm not, it's too long of a story. I'm not gonna read the whole thing. I will read one passage from it, but I'll tell the story. You'll be familiar with it. It's the story of a guy named Joseph. And this really illustrates what we're talking about today. So let me just set this up. So here's the short story of Joseph. There's a guy named Abraham who had a son named Isaac who had a son named Jacob who had 12 sons. And one of those 12 sons got sold by 11 of those other sons into slavery. The guy's name was Joseph, right? And the reason they sold the brother into slavery is their dad was a pretty bad dad. He played favorites. He announced to the whole family that he loved Joseph more than any of the, any of the rest of them. He buys him gifts that he doesn't get anybody else. This is bad parenting 101. He buys him a coat that has many colors and he doesn't get anybody else. And let's just be honest, Joseph doesn't have a whole lot of people skills either. He doesn't help. He doesn't help his cause. He supposedly has a prophetic dream. And in his prophetic dream, these haystacks are bowing to him, right? So he thinks, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna call a family meeting. That's what he does. He calls a family meeting and he says, hey guys, I've had a vision from God. And in my vision, I'm standing and you're bowing. Well, this goes terrible, right? Because no one likes a vision where you're standing and they're bowing. Listen, if you ever have a dream and everybody's bowing to you, I would urge you to consider that's probably not from God and consider, did you eat pepperoni for dinner. That's first. Second, even if it is from God, some visions from God are meant to be held on the inside and not shared with everybody on the outside. Well, they don't like this at all. So they sell him into slavery. He ends up in charge of Potiphar's house. And this is where he starts to show that he's got some pretty good skills with systems and, and management. And he does a really good job until he gets falsely accused of sexual assault by Potiphar's wife. And he ends up in jail. And even in jail, he starts helping folks. So he's helping folks in jail. And he says, hey, all I want you to do is when you get out of jail, please remember me in here and do your part to get me out of jail. And of course they don't. They forget about him. Well, ends up the king, a guy named Pharaoh, ends up having a dream. And one of the guys from prison remembers Joseph. And, they, and, and the, the one thing leads to another. Joseph helps Pharaoh. Pharaoh lets him out of jail. And he makes him the number two in charge of all of Egypt guy. That's the basics of the story that took 22 years to develop. Now stop and think about this for a second. If Joseph is a scorekeeper, how many people owe him? Lot, his dad owes him, his brothers owe him, Potiphar's wife owes him big time, the prisoners who forget about him. If Joseph is a scorekeeper and he's got a ledger of debits and credits, there's a lot of people in debit to him, a lot. And then suddenly he's given the political power to get even with everybody. 
Now the question is, what's he gonna do? And can we identify with this? Like, let's think about this, right? Can you remember a time where you were wronged, right? Like, and I'm not talking about like, it's 50-50. I'm talking about, no, no. Obviously, you were wronged, right? And if you can't think of a time like that, um, I don't know that we wanna know you. Everybody's had that, right? You weren't paying attention, right? And so think about what happens, right? You have this big conflict. You were done wrong. You walk away from the conflict. How many of us can admit that three seconds after you walk away from something like that, you suddenly think of everything you could have said, right? You're like, I should have said this, right? And then what happens? What happens is, is we drop it. No, we don't. We have imaginary conversations with ourself, right? We love imaginary conversations. Why? Because we always win. Listen, if you're losing your imaginary conversations, get your head checked. That's the one place you can win, right? And in that imaginary conversation, everybody sees it your way. And then you start imagining ways to get even. Now, picture this. Imagine in that scenario, suddenly being given all the power to get even. What do we do? What would we do in that situation? What we find in Joseph and in Jesus are both people with infinite power to get even who refuse to live on such a low plane, they choose to live on a higher plane by refusing to score keep. That's every temptation of Jesus on the cross was use your power to get even with us to prove you are who you say you are. And even in great stress, Jesus wouldn't do it. How many people owe Jesus in that story? Just in the last 10 hours of Jesus's life, how many people owe him? Lots. Judas owes him, Caiaphas owes him, Malchus owes him. He even takes time to heal Malchus's ear on the way to being tortured himself. This guy is unbelievable. The final and full way to see God revealed in the risen Christ on the cross, right? And so he says, no, because why? Liberty is best expressed and experienced when submitted to the higher ethic of love. And that's what we find in Joseph. And that's what we find in Jesus. The whole story culminates because what happens is, is there's a famine in Israel and his family that sold him hear that Egypt has food and can save their life. What they don't know is that the guy in charge of the food is the guy they sold years ago. They're gonna have to front him. And so they end up there and the whole thing culminates at a table. Joseph's brothers that sold him sitting around the table. If you'll excuse my imagination for a second, this might be right or wrong. I don't know, this is how I picture it when I read it. I picture Joseph's brothers sitting around the table. I picture the Egyptian military standing behind the brothers, waiting on one of two commands, serve the food or off with their heads. One of the other is gonna happen. Joseph gets so upset, he walks outside and it says he weeped out loud. Now, if you're one of the brothers and you realize what's going on here, what's your emotions? It's like, man, the guy that has the power to either starve us or take our head off is happens to be the guy that we sold years ago. I hope he isn't a scorekeeper, right? Joseph comes back in and he says three words, serve the food. In other words, see, in Hebrew culture, a table is a shulkan. Reconciliation is a shulkan. In other words, when you serve food together, it's like saying, what was between us is now no longer between us. We've made it all right. Now I wanna read this passage to you because I think we can garner um, some insight into how Joseph saw the world um, from this. This is Genesis chapter 50, verse 19, 20, and 21. 
But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your children, my nephews and nieces. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph's response to this incredible injustice was not to escalate the problem by scorekeeping and getting even, but to de-escalate it by living on a higher plane of love because love doesn't keep score. Now, how does he do this? One, Joseph prioritizes love, which allows the brothers to not be afraid because perfect love casts out fear. So if you think about standing in front of God one day and you're terrified, it's a skewed view of God being love because if God is love, it casts out all fear. And a lot of that fear just comes from the images of, hey, above your head, there's a credit side, a debit side. You're gonna stand in front of God and he's the judge. He's gonna, right? Like what? Like some truth in that? Is God here? Is God with us everywhere? Should we keep that in mind? Yes. Until we lose sight of the fact that in his love and in his consent, he chooses to keep no record of wrong. Joseph frames his place in God's. He's like, am I in the place of God? Look, if there's something to get even with here, that's in God's pay grade, not mine. I'm not gonna overstep that. He chooses a perspective of gratitude. He's like, hey, what you meant for evil. In other words, the forgiveness here is really profound. Forgiveness is not pretending something didn't happen. That's unprofound. Forgiveness is actually calling it what it is. I'm not even gonna pretend you meant well. You meant it for evil. You were evilly intentious. Yes, no, let's call it what it is. Forgiveness is not pretending that something happened. Forgiveness is naming it and then canceling the debt, which is so much more profound. He's like, hey, hey, you meant it for evil, but if I start counting up, if we're gonna do credits and debits, let's count up the good things that God's up to in our world. Look at this. Look at this. Oh, they think about this. Oh, what about this? Joseph's like, I'm gonna choose a perspective of gratitude instead of gauging and auditing who's ahead of the score because he honored a position of grace. See, Joseph saw the potential for grace in the situation he found himself in. In other words, let's say it this way. Scorekeeping stops when we see the purpose to save, rescue, restore, and reconcile. When we see the purpose to save, rescue, restore, and reconcile, it doesn't matter who's even and who's not even and what's going on there. See, let's say it a couple different ways. One, scorekeeping cheapens the relationship into a competition. Once the relationship becomes a competition, someone's ahead, someone's behind, and someone's hopelessly behind. And and if you're here today or you're watching online and you've thought, that's me, I do not want to engage God because I'm hopelessly behind the score. If that's you, or if that's any of us, I'd like to speak some hope for you. And that is this, you only heard half the truth. And that is that God does see everything and God does know everything. But you may have never been told when you were a kid and those images when we're kids stick with us. We may have never been told the other side of that truth, which is in his love and in his consent, he chooses to keep no record of wrong. In other words, is he gonna bring up your stuff on a big screen? No, because the wrong screen is empty. And if that helps, 
I'd like to urge you, if you've, if you've up to this point rejected a relationship with Jesus because of the scorekeeping metaphor, I'd like to set you free from that imagery today and urge you to say your next yes with Jesus. Because what happens in Joseph and what happens with the God revealed in Christ is both Joseph and Jesus choose to submit their power to the higher ethic of love by preferring the other person. In other words, the God revealed in Christ and Joseph is not someone who judges our story or criticizes it or banishes it. It's a God that engages the broken story in order to make a better narrative. As Amy really astutely pointed out in the worship, I don't know if you caught what she said, that God writes our story with us. Exactly, that God is not sitting above our story, judging, criticizing, banishing. He's engaging the broken narrative in order to make a better story. But no reasonable person will say yes to that process if they think God is a scorekeeper. You can't say yes to that and think God's a scorekeeper. The good news is that God is love and love keeps no record of wrong. Because here's the problem. When we keep score, we start to believe that God does. And I'll say it in the inverse. When we believe God keeps score, we justify a life of scorekeeping ourselves. And if God keeps score, then the whole beautiful, holy, divine life inside of us gets dumbed down to a score. And some people are ahead and some people are behind and some are hopelessly behind. The real danger in scorekeeping is that it violates the love of God as represented by the cross that the God revealed in Christ on the cross is canonic, cruciform, and pure love. If you wanna know what God's like, look at the cross. A God that is humbling himself to engage the broken story, even if the broken story hurts him to the point of murder. That is the God revealed in Christ. The God revealed in Christ does not use his power at the expense of love. He submits his power to the higher ethic of love. And that means God is patient and kind and does not envy and does not boast. And God doesn't keep score because love doesn't keep score. Now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. Great sermons are meant to be wrestled with for application. So let's ask a few questions about this. If this is true, then Jesus didn't die simply to fix a problem. Like, this is the problem with presenting Jesus. Like, Jesus came, right? God was grumpy, and then he tortured his own kid and then became ungrumpy. What? Jesus did not die to fix a problem. Jesus died to eradicate an entire system of scorekeeping that was around his world. Like, the ancient Jews had mastered scorekeeping. What did you do? You did what? Did you mean to? No. So an unintentional sin. Yes, you owe a half a hen of wine and a bird. What did you do? Oh, you meant to do, you know you meant to do that. So you don't owe a bird, sir, you owe a goat, right? And a quarter hen of wine and a half a hen of water. That's what you owe. They had mastered the art of scorekeeping. If you do this, this is what makes the ledger right. They had mastered that. Now, Jesus wasn't the first person to call that out. There were prophets like Micah who came along and he's like, what kind of God is grumpy and then gets ungrumpy because you killed a bird. That's stupid. Just do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God, it'll be okay. Micah was ahead of his time and they killed him. Jesus shows up and the God revealed in Christ is like, I'm not just dying to fix a problem. I'm dying to eradicate 
the entire system of scorekeeping to invite people to live in love. Now, are we violating that in our marriages? In your marriages, has it become a point collection system? And I can go ahead and tell you, if it is, and the reason when I made that joke earlier, everybody laughed, is because there's a lot of truth to it. And if your marriages, and only you know, and no one else wants to know, it's just between you and your spouse, if it's become a system of point collection, if you're honest with yourselves, somebody's behind, somebody's hopelessly behind, and maybe some things are fixable if we just denied the urge to default to scorekeeping. Are we violating the God revealed in Christ in our relationships like neighbors and coworkers? Have you lost the joy of your job because you can't stop thinking about the person who works less hard than you making a little more money? Maybe that's a problem. Are we feeling hopelessly behind the score? Let's say it this way. Where do we need to remember that God keeps no record of wrongs? That in his love and in his consent, love doesn't keep score. God doesn't keep score. And that should set us free to never be scorekeeping ourselves. So what I wanna to do to end the sermon is, I wanna reread 1 Corinthians 13. And I'm just simply gonna replace the word love with the word God, because God is love. Not to change the doctrine, but to hopefully shift the imagination of how things work. Maybe our primary image of God being love needs to remove the element of scorekeeping from it because love doesn't keep score. Let me read this to you. This is 1 Corinthians 13, four to nine. It's gonna come up on the screen. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor other people. God is not self-seeking. God does, God, God does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrong. God keeps no record of wrong. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. God always protects you, always trusts you, always hopes in you, always perseveres with you, for God never fails. So I bless you, my brothers and sisters of Highway, to know that God is writing your story with you. I love that line. It's my favorite line of the morning. God is writing your story with you. He's engaging the broken narrative in order to make a better story by making a commitment to keeping no record of wrongs. And I bless you to be inspired by the God revealed in Jesus and the life of Joseph to live on a higher plane than scorekeeping. There's a better way to live. I'll see you guys all tonight. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless you.